welcome to the podcast. Would you like to introduce yourself? Hi, my name is Lisa Penistone. I'm a senior lecturer in Australian history at the University of Queensland. Excellent. So I was just wondering, because you have studied history, and obviously you research it, but what, as a kind of high school student in history, did that like what piqued your interest there? I didn't really actually like history very much at high school, so I'm the opposite of most historians who really did fall in love, I think, with history at school, whereas I didn't particularly, I wasn't overly interested in it. I really loved English, in fact, and when I came to uni, I was studying English, but I found I didn't really have the parameters to understand what was going on in certain time frames, so I remember being in a, in a treat and people were saying, oh, well, there was the great, there was a depression in the 1890s and that's what this book is talking about. And I was like, oh, I didn't know there was a depression in the 1890s. So I thought I would do a little bit of history uh, just to give me background actually for English. But then really when I started history at university, then I did fall in love with it. So my experience at school, I didn't mind it when I was younger, but I didn't have great teachers in year 11 and 12 and it really didn't inspire me to, to really think about it. The one thing I do remember loving in year 11 was I did an assignment on trench foot in World War One, and it is funny that that's the thing that really tickled my interest because I ended up becoming a medical historian. So I think that interest was from the very start. Okay, and yeah, so you went to university to study history? Well, no, no, I didn't really. I actually, I had quite bad glandular fever. So I, when I was starting uni, so I was going to do an accountancy degree and my dad had a, you know, an accountancy practice that I had thought I might take over. And but because of the glandular fever, I, I thought, oh, well, I'll sort of take six or 12 months and just go part time. And I'll might as well do something I'm going to enjoy rather than, you know, I might as well explore some of my interests. So that's really how I started studying English and then history. But it was never intended as a long-term prospect at that stage. And it was only that I found I was good at it and that I just loved it, that I kept going. And did you then kind of go on to honours and PhD just straight away or did something kind of happen before then? No, I pretty much went straight through to honours at the end of, like, I, and I got a first class honours, that was quite a good mark, and I thought, oh, I, I thought I would like to do the PhD, but it was very dependent on me getting a scholarship, there was no way I could have done it without a scholarship, and I finished my honours mid-year, and so I had sort of six months off, so I started working in a marketing company, and in some ways I might have gone that route. But really, after about eight months of working in the marketing company, I decided that that was not for me. And it really made me want to go back and do the PhD much more than I had at the start. So by that stage, I was really passionate about going back and doing the PhD. And it was just a matter of applying for scholarships. And I did get one. So I got, actually got a couple of offers. So that was exciting. And then I started. So I only had a little while off, but it was enough to convince me that I really did want to go back to uni. Yeah, fair enough. And what was your PhD on? My PhD was on the development of gynaecology, obstetrics and paediatrics in Australia from 1880 to 1925. So really I was interested, it was called breeding and feeding and it was really about the development of ideas about, I, I guess I was interested in the sort of shift from women's bodies being of primary importance in the birthing process to an increased interest at the turn of the century in the bodies of infants and, and what that meant and kind of contextualised in needs for white Australia and the sort of broader eugenics and uh, pronatalist discourses. But yeah, I was interested in how that played out on individual women's bodies too. 
And how does that feed into the research you're doing now? Well, I think I've always really been interested in bodies and how bodies are experienced and how bodies are related to authority figures. So it's partly medicine, but also partly the law, how medicine and the law kind of attempt to control and manipulate people's bodies. So I think I went from the history of obstetrics and gynecology into the more broader history of sexuality. So my first book is on history of sexuality over a 60-year period in Australia and that was really fun to write. It was it was all kinds of different kinds of sexuality. It talked quite a bit about medicine, but also about uh, other social issues and other forms of control. And it was kind of a, a, an exciting sort of romp, I think, across this big, broad history of sexuality. And then I became interested really in the history of sexual violence, mainly because I was working with my friend, Andy Kalajelfis, who had worked much more in that field. And we thought we'd come together and write something on sort of medicine in the trial. And that we were kind of bringing our own areas of expertise together in many ways, Angie working in legal history and and myself in medical history. And we found these sources that were the transcripts of close to 500 court cases in the 1950s that had been saved and not destroyed. So it took us a little while to realise what we'd found in many ways and we sort of talked about it for quite a long time while we were copying them you know it took a long time to actually collect and understand the data because it was such a big pile of material and then slowly that developed into the book that that became sex crimes okay so just before we do go a bit further into kind of sex crimes in the 1950s just on your fascination with the body what do you think that says about you as a person (laughs) oh I don't really know Uh, yeah I think there are links I had endometriosis when I was younger so I was very interested in I guess I was interested in the ways that modern medical care still looked at bodies in much the same way as Victorian medical care had looked at bodies and I, I think that really honed my interest but I think I was always interested in medical history before that but yeah, I'm interested in those aspects of social control, I think, and how they play out in medicine and the law. And I'm still interested in that. And when I you know, read the newspaper today, those are the things I'm still looking for. So, And what sort of advice would you give to students who are starting out at university? I think give yourself a little bit of time to, to find your passion. You know, there's such a drive now just to move straight into a very career orientated degree but I think sometimes it takes students a year or two to find what it is they want to do and I I, I think don't stress about that it's 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 part of the process and if you allow yourself that time and it's not really an indulgence it's it's a matter of setting yourself up for a job that you're going to love for the rest of your life so I see it as just exploring your options because they might not be what you instantly think that they are and uh, giving yourself that time, you know, a year or two in your life is not very long and yet it can set you up really for a career that you will enjoy forever. And also just looking for a book recommendation that either has had an influence on you or you've just been really interested in. I guess there's only, there's a, you know, always you have a small number of books that really do change the way you think. And I remember reading the edited collection, Kay Saunders and Raymond Evans' Gender Relations in Australia, Domination and Negotiation. And I must have read that in the early 90s, I think. And I remember it really, it really reshaped the way I thought about Australian history. I hadn't done a lot of gender 
stuff in Australian history in, in my undergraduate degree. And when I'd done gender history, it had been generally outside of Australian history. And I guess that book opened my eyes to, to thinking about gender in Australia. And I was interested in both Australia and gender, but that book kind of brought them together in some ways, I think, which was very exciting. And, you know, it's still fairly prominent on my bookshelf. It's still something I turn to and something I teach out of regularly. So Great. I'll have to pick up a copy. <laughs> and so moving on now to your research that you've published recently. So we are talking a little bit just before about the sex crimes in the 50s book that you wrote with Andy as yeah. well. So you could, yeah, you've already given a bit of a explanation on it, but particularly I was interested in, you mentioned in the book that there was almost a mentality that was progressing in the 1950s. Yeah, so what, what we found really interesting about the 1950s is in some ways we look back at the 50s with nostalgia and there's all those kind of, you know, picnics and rallies you can go and dress up in 50s attire and there's a certain nostalgia around the 50s, which I must say I don't personally feel because it looked like it would have been an awful life to be a housewife in the 50s in my opinion. But there is a nostalgia around it. But at the same time, it's also the, in many ways the birth of modern Australia. But, you know, post-war is kind of a lot changes, particularly for women, but also in the broader community. So we wanted to trace how sexual, how sexual crime and how sexual violence was understood in this time period. And we see many of the, and while there's a great deal of change in the 1970s and 80s in terms of both legislation and social social ideas, what we see in the 50s, I think, is the birth of many of the key ideas about sexual offences that we see now. There's a, there's a direct lineage between the 50s and now that we, we sought to trace. And, you know, a lot changes. For example, most obviously the decriminalisation of consenting homosexual relationships, which were harshly you know, criminalised in, in the 1950s. But we also see real elements of continuity as well. And, yeah, so you've talked just a little bit about, you know, you can see the progression to kind of modern today's Australia. But what are the specific things that you see in today's Australia and its justice system that you found in the 1950s? Well, we were really intrigued to find that offences against children were the core business of the court in terms of sexual offences in this time period. So much as we see a lot of alarm and and verging on hysteria about child sexual offences against children now, you know, that that's directly traceable to the 50s and to ideas about what childhood meant. So in the 50s, we see, we, we're, a bit, we're a bit surprised, I guess, with some of our findings. So historians had long shown that there was an increase in homosexual offences in the 50s and had read this as a kind of targeting of gay men uh, in consenting relationships. But what we found was that sex offences rose across the board and they rose particularly when the victim was a child. So we were, we were really interested just to trace that difference, in fact, and, and, and the sort of start of real targeted interest in child sexual offences. Yeah, so you talked a little bit about kind of targeting homosexuality, but you also looked at just general assault against men as well? Yeah, so, so we looked at all kinds of... We basically looked at a variety of kind of offences, and that included rape, indecent assault on adult women, and then the child sexual offences, which were various. And we also looked at multiple kind of offences against men, so sodomy or buggery, but also indecent assault on a male. 
So yeah, we were we were concerned to kind of give a full coverage of all kinds of sexual violence in the book. And you know, there were certain things that that came out really was you know, the sexual offending against family members was a key kind of chapter in the book, I think. And also, you know, that some groups were targeted for criminalisation more so than others. So, for example, we have a chapter on how immigrant offenders and victims were treated in the court and and what that meant for, for new Australians. And did you look at all about sexual assault against disabled people? We had just a very tiny number of cases. It wasn't something that specifically came up in the court records. So the problem with court records is that you're driven entirely by what people are interested in in the 1950s. So if they're not interested in the 1950s, it's harder to unpack it now. So we had a tiny number of cases, for example, where the complainant or victim was intellectually disabled. So there had to be an establishment of that intellectual disability before the case could proceed. And But beyond that, we didn't really see much interest because no one in the 1950s was really talking about that. So court cases are very flattened documents. You know, you don't get much of a nuance in them. You, you get certain themes that come out over and over and over again, but it's very hard to explore other ideas. So moving on to your sexual assault by teachers article, which I can imagine would be difficult to have to read. But they're all difficult to read. (laughs) And so you looked very specifically at the legislation and the policy that was happening at that time. Yeah, so what we were interested in, I guess, most of our book, most of the sex crimes book is actually interested in sexual assaults that happen outside institutions. And of course, if you think about this, that's because they're the ones that are going to court. Most crimes that are committed within institutions, as the Royal Commission has so powerfully shown us over the last few years, they never get to court. They're they're not police, they're not prosecuted, they don't go to court. So they're they're silent crimes. So the vast majority of crimes that we are able to look at in our book from court transcripts are non-institutional. And so that might be people like neighbours, friends, family members or strangers, other main offenders. But one group we could trace to a small degree was teachers. So when we wrote the teacher article, we looked more broadly, not just at the 1950s, but over a much longer time period. And sexual offences perpetrated by teachers was in New South Wales more strongly criminalised so that the, the age of consent was older and the penalties could be harsher. And this was in line in New South Wales with one other group, and that was fathers and Relatives, so that they were also more, they also had a higher age of consent and a higher penalty. But yeah, we were interested to trace how how the state imagined teachers, and in some ways they are kind of the, you know, substitutes for parents while people are at school. So that these crimes are criminalised more firmly. And yeah, we traced on a lot of cases over a longer time period where teachers were involved in the sexual assault of children, and some. Some occurred in country areas, and I guess there's lots of opportunity for that because smaller schools with less adults allowed more opportunity. But we also traced other cases that were in cities and towns as well. So it was pretty across the board. And just to finish up, also, you looked at the prosecutorial responses as well? Yeah, so we were really interested to see sort of how, who was being prosecuted. We know that sexual assaults uh, across the board, are very highly underreported. We know that probably, well, best estimates are around 10% of, of 
adult women who are raped, only 10% will go to the police. So we, we really just wanted to sort of see how we thought people were being prosecuted over a long, long period of time and how, how this might work out. And we certainly saw some, some groups were targeted more than others. We felt that people who assaulted children, they often went to court. They were not abandoned so readily. Assaults against adult women were often not fully prosecuted, particularly if the woman had been drinking or acting in some way that was seemed inappropriate in the 1950s. Those cases, of course, we can't trace fully in the courtroom itself because they don't get to court, but we could look at charges and so forth and see what was dropped. We were also interested in the idea, I'm, I'm very interested in the idea, ideas around rape in marriage. So rape in marriage is not criminalised in Australia till the late 1970s, starting in South Australia and then into the 80s for most other states. So those regions, so yeah, raping by intimate partners is really very much not prosecuted. It's, it's uh, you, you start to only see it much later in the 20th century. All right. Well, thank you for sitting down with me. <laughs> yeah, no problem. Happy to happy to have a chat. All right. Thank you. Um.